Anderson really didn't have to do much in the way of discipline. Sit over here with Jonathan. Sit over here. Jonathan. He's smart. Since I was born, I dreamed of being a Budweiser Clydesdale. Only problem is, I was born a donkey. So all my life, I practiced the Clydesdale walk. And the Clydesdale pull. I even tried hair extensions on my lower legs. And then came my big interview. They looked me in the eye and said, What makes you think you can be a Clydesdale, son? And what was my answer? said something, right? Campanaris Harris at first. A 1-1 count to Joe Rudy. 26 years old. There goes Campanaris. A curveball is high to throw by Bench. And he's out the second ball. Drew Morgan took the throw. Campanaris, a pretty good jump. Johnny Banks, though, can throw out anybody if he throws a strike, and that's what he threw to Joe Morgan. And they missed Campanaris at second. Banks this year threw out 60% of the men who tried to steal on him. Yeah, he's a lead off first base, but that rightful arm, Johnny Banks, what more can you say, Al? You've seen it all year long. Welcome to my dojo, those other parts are so so I'm too light, bro, yo Focus like a GoPro, ripping up this promo Check out the scoreboard, freaks, I'm throwing no-no Going, it's going, it's going, yo, it's gone Your heart just stopped, cause Jake got strong and mighty Undefeated, I mean it Pull up the pot, scroll it down and read it Written, produced, directed, and mixed Dog on your lips and Ozzy Smith backflips Pick a tip, any tip, get on to it I got ridiculous pods without forcing it You sit at home crying like a girl while I spread the gospel around the world Yo, the pods are written behind tracks That mix it smooth with the groove To make ears wanna listen Add a little gut and a rhythm to back it up Another show to my name, now watch me stack them up You think another white rap bag But this ain't no act jack My hobbies are rhyme, some people try to be black But that, about time I come out Call the show, BKP and let me turn it out Yo, name Jake the Snake, born of 71 Dates, you know what time it is I'm packing them guns, your experience I've been a witness to glory And that's why I collect Ball players and their stories. You heard? So, 
Once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson, from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Carolina. Hat man, hat podcast machine, back in the Captain Kurt chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pop, where we collect ball players and their stories. What's cracking, you freaks? What's juicy? Welcome back into the BKP Dojo for the Grassroots Baseball Podcast Show, Spanning the Globe. And I like to sneak in the ring every Tuesday and hit you with a chair shot of that free baseball smoke. You know, a place where I sit down with like-minded seamheads such as yourself, and we dig into the history of this great game, all of the memorable moments, some good, some bad, all of the characters and great players. We've covered many of the majestic cathedrals that have housed this great sport, from throwback cribs like the Polo Grounds, Forbes Field, Comiskey Park, etc., etc., to the current ball yards currently used in Major League Baseball from the oldest, which is Fenway Park. And I think now we're up to Minute Maid Park in Houston. As I will continue to add to our stadium wing in January. The mission of the show from day one has been to preach the gospel of baseball to the world. As well as leave my voice behind for future generations of seamheads. If I can inspire... One person sparked the interest of someone, somewhere, anywhere, on this planet to develop a love or maybe a different perspective of this game. Then look, mission accomplished. I'm driven to doing this show because, well, it's a labor of love. It's my true passion. Baseball has been a constant in my life. The ups, the downs, the good, the bad, the rejection, the loneliness. The game has always been there to embrace me and solace. And this truly is my way of giving back. Hello, everybody. I'm Jake Robinson. I got your hookup. Holler if you hear me. This is Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. And as we head into December, in all humility... I am proud of the over 150 years of baseball history we've covered here at BKP. From Moses Fleetwood Walker all the way up to the generational player today in Shohei Otani. And I'm certainly grateful for this audience that gives me the strength to push push it on and live the dream. And this is Show 109, Week 4 of the 2023 MLB Offseason. And I'll get to this week's topic in a hot minute, but I've been genuinely pleased with the pace of the offseason moves so far, especially when you consider all the moving parts involved with two Japanese pitchers posting out of the NPBL. And speaking of Otani, which, you know, everyone's talking Otani, and it sounds like he wants to wrap this up sooner rather than later. He's also putting it out there that if any team makes their meetings public, it's going to work against them, meaning... You're probably going to be out. Which, you know, I like that. little covert action there. But I feel like we're going to find out about his destiny within a week or two. And I think it's going to be 
an unexpected team. It, it just has that feel to me. I, I don't feel like Otani is trying to bank, uh, break the bank. I see him looking for the best destination for him and his family. Juan Soto, he looks to be the biggest possible trade chip on the market. And I feel like he and the Yankees are, are like this perfect match. In fact, I think if the Yankees are able to pull it off, it forces me to kind of change my perception about a team that finished 82 and 80 last year, seven games out of the playoffs. And I also think that the Yankees will be one of the few teams in on the Juan Soto pre agent market of 2025. And, you know, they just trade for him. They'd be able to retain him because of that price tag. And let's not forget, the Yankees are in dire need of an outfielder, left-handed power, to augment Judge and Stanton. However, initial reports are, you know, the Padres, well, they want a King's ransom from New York, asking for pitcher Michael King, pitching prospect Drew Fort, which he looks pretty nice. And as many as five of the prospects like Randy Vasquez, Johnny Brito. And it was also suggested that the Yankees eat pieces of center fielder Trent Grisham's salary. <laughs> now, look, far be it from me to cry about someone playing hardball with the Yankees when it comes to trades after, you know, watching them just abuse the Pirates in deal after deal in the early 2000s. But... San Diego needs to be reasonable. Unless they just want to lose him at the end of the year for draft pick. The Yankees do, in fact, have some very good pitching prospects with upside. But they're not going to empty the cupboard for a rental. But look, if it's reasonable, I think the Yankees are willing to talk. And San Diego is in dire need of pitching. After watching five pitchers on their staff head out to free agency including NL side winner Blake Snell and the best closer in the NL last year, Josh Hader. And speaking of Hader, there have been rumors of talks between him and my beloved Orioles, and, yeah, look, first of all, I'll walk through hell with a suit made of gasoline for O's GM Michael Elias. If he says this is the way, so be it. But I can't help thinking that's a lot of money for a closer. I believe there are cheaper options there. Like maybe in-house with, you know, Yenier Cano. Or maybe in a guy like Tyler Wells. And I know a lot of Orioles fans, they don't want to hear that shit. They want to hear about the Orioles spending money. But in Tyler Wells' situation, they had to shut him down after the workload of innings wore him down. Now, he did come back down the stretch and into the postseason. And he pitched well in relief. He even picked up a save down the stretch. And, folks, look at that whip. Point nine nine in 118 and a two-thirds innings pitched. That's good closer stuff. The, the Orioles have done this before. Yeah, thank Zach Britton. Honestly, I'd like to see the Orioles follow the Braves blueprint and lock up Gunnar Henderson and Adley Rockstar. But I'd also like to see them get aggressive in the Japanese market, pursue Shota Imanaga, 30-year-old southpaw pitcher, Three-time Salamore uh, Award winner in Japan. I think he could be more affordable than, say, a Blake Snell. I, I figure he would get somewhere in the neighborhood of Kodai Senga's three-year $75 million deal he signed with the Mets last offseason. Both Imanaga and Senga are the same age. 
I would pitch the Great Wall of Baltimore out in left field to the left-handers. Last year's standings and the plethora of young talent that's still, you know, trying to get to the big shell. I think it sends a message to the team in the city that this is for real. And we are preparing to do our very best to get it done. But to be fair, I, you know, look, the signing of Hayter would signal that as well. The pitching has moved the first month of the season as the cards gobbled up 3-6. 50% of the pitchers on the market so far. And Sonny Gray, Lance Lynn, and Kyle Gibson. Aaron Nola quickly resigned with the Bills, which is, I, you know, I think that's a huge quiet sign. Kenta Maeda has left the Twins for their rival Tigers. And just this past week, Luis Severino signed a one-year $13 million deal with the Mets. I know people are laughing at the Mets, but, you know, this could be the, the deal of the year, kind of like Bellinger was for the Cubs, you know. The Dodgers non-tended, tendered Bellinger. And the Cubs got him for $17 million. Look at him now. He's going to be sitting on about a $200 million contract. I don't think the Yankees should be in on him. I don't. I think there's baggage there. I think Soto is the safer pick, the better investment. And I told you last week, there's no doubt in my mind, dudes are going to way overpay this year with the Yankees in need of hitting and the Dodgers looking for starting pitcher, uh, starting pitchers driving the market. And if I'm a GM, I'm pretty much sitting it out on big ticket items this year. Otani and Yamamoto, God bless them, get that paper, kid. I think Yamamoto is going to be a fantastic ad for anyone lucky enough to get him. But after that, there's a lot of baggage attached to full market value. And even with Otani not being able to pitch next year, we don't know what kind of pitcher he's going to be in two years when he comes back from his second surgery. To me, some of the better deals this year are actually smaller deals with some of the older vets I see available, like Tommy Pham or Brandon Belt. And there are trades to be made all over the place. So, just to keep you free abreast about some of the goings on in Major League Baseball during the offseason, I'll be here every week giving you the skinny on some of these things before that first pitch of opening day 2024. And boy, oh boy, this platform here at Terrible Station is packed today. Looks like a full train this week. And as I look out to the west of Terrapin, I see our immaculately, immaculately manicured baseball field. The pitcher has completed his warm-up tosses. The catcher is throwing down to second base. The umpires call play ball, and the infield is now throwing that rock around. And that's my cue to clear this platform Get the rest of you stragglers loaded up on our BKP time travel choo As I call all aboard. And this week, I will be setting our destination for December 7th, 1947, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, where a veritable Baseball legend and icon will be born amongst us mere mortals as this week we will bear witness to the rise and journey of the great Johnny Bench. So get your loved ones goodbye as we set up on our adventure. For you folks waiting here at Turpin, it would be a mere 2 minutes and 22 seconds before I return back. But for you guys on the train, we're going to witness a lifetime and the career of baseball royalty, 
a name that will rightfully be passed down through the generations of seamans to come. So climb on board, find yourself a comfortable seat, take off your shoes, open your komodos, while I bend baseball space and time to get to our date and destination. You know, let's talk a little about this icon we're going to break down this week. And what can you say about Johnny Bench, right? I mean, a total stud. When God created Johnny Bench, even he had no idea how magnificent this creature would become behind the dish. And I spoke to you guys a few weeks ago in the Bob Gibson show about how you have you have Hall of Famers, the made men. And then there's that inner circle of Hall of Famers, the Dons. And, you know, Gibson is part of that inner tribe, as is Johnny Bench. He was Mikhail Baryshnikov in Shin Guards, as agile as a cheetah in her pre-sprint chase. A leader like Dwight Eisenhower with, team, with a team of warriors ready to storm the beaches at his behest. In a lo- loaded lineup, infamously hailed as the Great Eight, he was without question the engine of the Big Red Machine. And during his prime catching years, he outright owned the game of baseball. If a person were to go to their first baseball game of their lives and they knew very little about the sport and Johnny Bench was playing, it wouldn't take long for even the most novice of eyes to recognize that not only is Bench the best player on the diamond, but there is something different about him, something special that has never been seen before at his position. He is the benchmark. And look, in some ways, it's not fair to the exceptional catchers in the game's history that have come after him. I'm talking to Gary Carters, Ted Simmons, the Piazzas and Pudges from Yachty to Real Muto, and my boy Adley Rockstar. All of them had this near-impossible legend to knock off the top of the mountain. And while baseball players are getting bigger, faster, and stronger in real time, right before our eyes, most baseball historians who saw Bench get after it, they flat out refuse to put any other player above him still to this day. After the final out of the 1976 World Series that saw the big red machine sweep the New York Yankees, and what is still the last National League team to win back-to-back world titles? A New York sports writer asked manager Sparky Anderson to compare Yankees catcher Thurman Munson, who had a productive series despite the loss, and he was the American League most valuable player, by the way, that year. Well, the New York sports writer asked him how he would compare Munson to his catcher, Johnny Bench. And the fiercely loyal Sparky replies back that Munson is an outstanding catcher who would hit 300 in the NL. But don't ever compare nobody to Johnny Bench. Don't ever embarrass nobody by comparing him to Johnny Bench. 
And standing nearby, Munson heard what Sparky said, and when he followed the wily manager to the microphone, the toughest nails but thin-skinned rabbit-eared Thurman said he felt belittled. And Sparky would later handwrite a letter of apology to Munson, explaining that he never meant to belittle or embarrass Thurman, and he reiterated his, you know, admiration for his game, but he could never foresee a future where any catcher will ever be on par with the Johnny Bench standard. And almost 50 years later, old Sparky may have been onto something here. All these generations after Johnny's last game, he ostensibly remains the gold standard for baseball catchers of any era. By the age of 20, he is the master of his domain. By the age of 22, he was the biggest star in baseball at any, at any position. Now, like many of our baseball heroes who have donned the tools of ignorance, the, the rigorous demands of the position would ultimately push him to the infield during his 30s and into retirement by age 35. However, his first decade with the Cincinnati Reds was enough to make him the choice as the greatest catcher who ever lived by many of the experts who witnessed his play. And here we are, folks, bending baseball, space, and time into the great state of Oklahoma, where Johnny Lee Bench is born on December 7th, 1947, in Oklahoma City. Six years to the day after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. His father, Ted, was a truck driver, and his mother, Kathy, a doting homemaker. They moved around the area a few times before settling down in Binger, Oklahoma. That's about 60 miles west of OKC. With their children, Teddy, William, Johnny, and their baby sister, Marilyn. And it was there in Binger where... Johnny has his first recollection of playing baseball. He remembers swinging bats held together by electrical tape. His father, Ted, had been a ball player playing in high school and in the Army. But by the time World War II had ended, he was too old to resume his playing career. So instead, he immerses all of his efforts in dreams vicariously through his three boys. When Johnny is six years old, his father started a boys' baseball team, buying the kids new gear, driving them to games in his truck. And from day one, Johnny was a team catcher. Like Pud Rodriguez, whom we did last week, his father impresses the position onto him, telling his youngest son that catching is the quickest way to make it to the show. Unlike Pudge, Bench had no reservations about this position. He wanted to be a major leaguer as long as he could remember, and if his father says this is the quickest way to his goal, so be it. And Bench remembers watching fellow Oklahoma native Mickey Mantle on his television as a kid just murdering baseballs for the Yankees and taking champagne showers after World Series victories. 
and implanted the seeds of possibility in his mind. If the kid from Commerce, Commerce, Oklahoma can do it, ah, so can I. By the second grade, Johnny is practicing his autograph and telling teachers that he's going to be a Major League Baseball player. He played primarily as a pitcher and catcher throughout his youth. In organized play from Little League to American Legion. He played basketball and baseball at Bigger High School, where he was an All-State in both sports. He also excelled academically, becoming the valedictorian in his high school class of 21 students. His high school years were marred by tragedy. A bus carrying his uh, baseball team between games. It, it lost its brakes and it rolled down a 50 foot ravine before it eventually stopped. It killed two of Bench's high school teammates. Johnny himself was knocked unconscious by the wreck, and the details of the tragic affair, it still sits in his psyche today. In June of 1965, the Cincinnati Reds select Bench with the second round, 36th pick overall in baseball's first amateur draft. And Johnny briefly considered attending college on a baseball and or basketball scholarship, but instead he signs with Red Scout Tony Rabello for six grand and some college tuition. And to give you proper context, $6,000 in 1965, it has the purchasing power of around $57,000 today in 2023, which, let's be honest, it won't even cover the cost of most books in most colleges today, you know, let alone tuition for one year to college. He's first assigned to Tampa of the Florida League, where he played along stud prospects Bernie Carmel and Hal McRae. He hit 248 with two home runs, but he earned rave reviews for his defense. The next spring, he trains with the Reds in Tampa. And the 18-year-old kid shows no fear and is never overwhelmed in his first big league camp. While some younger fellers may need a couple of seasons to feel totally comfortable with their big league teammates and confident in the fact that they belong, Bench immediately felt and acted like he was a team leader. So, after careful consideration, and they did consider taking him north with them, but Reds manager Don Hapner, he sends the 18-year-old Bench to Hampton, Virginia, to play in the single-A Carolina League and the Peninsula Graves. He destroys that league, winning Player of the Year honors, hitting 294 and blasting 22 home runs before being promoted to Triple-A Buffalo. And before he left the Peninsula Graves ball club, the team had its number eight retired. But Buffalo didn't work so out so well for this rising phenom. In the, in the very first inning, of his AAA debut, he takes a foul tip off his right thumb and he broke it, ostensibly ending his season. And to make matters worse, 
on his drive back home to Binger, he wrecks his brand new 1965 Ford Fairlane that he brought with his bonus money after colliding with a drunk driver. And much like his experience in that high school bus crash, Johnny still feels lucky to have cheated death once again and only coming away with 27 stitches in his scalp as collateral damage. Bench returned to Buffalo and continues to produce, batting 259, belting 23 home runs. After the season, he is named the minor league player of the year at 19 years old. The Reds promoted Johnny in late August. He started 26 games down the stretch for a team that was well out of contention. He got his first hit off of Phillies hurler Chris Short on August 30th at his first First home run comes off of Braves pitcher Jim Britton in Atlanta on September 20th of that year. He didn't hit very well in that first month of Major League experience. He batted a measly 163 with that one home run to his credit, but the Reds run office, to their credit, they saw enough to make a commitment to Johnny. Enough to trade two-time Gold Glover and three-time NL All-Star catcher Johnny Edwards. And Johnny was only 29 years old, a player just tapping into his proverbial potential. But they took a risk. They moved him to St. Louis to clear the way for the 20-year-old Johnny Betts. And with Cincinnati firmly behind their phenom, Johnny embraced the confidence bestowed on him as well as the challenge of being the team leader and his rise to stardom is rapid. After playing briefly in two games early in the 1968 season, he gets his first start on April 17th versus Johnny Edwards in the cards and he stays in the lineup for the next 81 straight games as a catcher. And all he caught 154 games that year, a record for rookie catchers at that time, and he hit 200. He hit 272 with 15 home runs, 82 RBIs, and don't forget, folks, that was 1968, the year of the pitcher, when the league batting average was 243. He's hitting 272. His power production totals. They led all National League catchers, and his 40 doubles was the third most in the National League for all players. By the end of the year, he's batting cleanup for a team that scored the most runs in the National League. He gets elected to his first All-Star game appearance, catching the final inning of the one nothing victory by the National League in the Houston Astrodome. And to top it all off, he wins the NL Rookie of the Year honors at the end of his first full campaign. And as lethal as Bench was in the middle of that young red machine lineup, it was his defense garnering the most praise throughout the league. He had the greatest footwork ever seen in the history of the game. In the blink of an eye, He could pop up from a pitch and be in perfect position to launch that over-the-top, behind-the-ear throwing motion that made the ball appear as though it was being projected by a recoilless rifle. 
Bench was six foot one, two hundred pounds. That's ninety-seven kilograms. But he always seemed to play larger, and he had exceptional God-given agility. He had these huge bare paws for hands. He could literally palm a basketball in high school. He could hold seven baseballs in one hand. After watching Randy Hudley, he begins catching one-handed. Now, that may not sound like a big deal to some of you young seamheads right now, but before Hudley and Bench, most catchers almost across the board, from Yogi Berra to Bill Dickey to Roy Campanella to Mickey Cochran, almost all of them caught with both hands. And after suffering that broken thumb in Buffalo in 1966, Johnny begins placing his right hand behind his back to protect him from foul tips again. Now, all these catchers do this now. But I'm telling you, this was innovative stuff in 1968. He was also one of the first catchers to use a hinged mitt rather than the circular pillow-style glove you see in pictures pre-Johnny Bench. This allowed Johnny to make better plays on bunts or on closed plays at the plate just by adding the hinge, the thumb hinge, to his newfangled glove that is now beginning to catch the eye of other catchers and opposing managers throughout the majors. He becomes the first catcher in the history of baseball to win a Gold Glove Award in his rookie year. Along with his top shelf liquor, lumber, and defense, Ben stood out for his confident leadership at such a young age. His veteran pitching staff, they marveled at Johnny's ability to call a game and how well he knew the opposing hitters so quickly. From day one, something about Bench was infectious. He was born to lead. And that staff, they fed off of him. Team star pitcher Jim Maloney, one day he's out on the bump and he's staring at his young rookie with amazement as the kid is, you know, he's trying to pop, prop the vet up, whooping in his ear. Now look, I want you to bury down here and throw as hard as you can with this guy. Don't be afraid. He can't touch you. But look, you know, don't be afraid to throw the curve at the next guy. The guy sitting on deck. We, we need you here. Now let's go. And a grin, you know, it just breaks out over the veteran's face. He's listening. And damn it, this rookie isn't 100% what he's laying down here. You know, Maloney after the game set. So help me, this kid coaches me, and I love it. When you're in a big sweat, nervous, he knows how to calm you down in more ways than I've ever seen. As a rookie, Bench had established himself as one of the best players in the game, and then he got even better. His world-class team remained stellar, and he collected 10 straight Gold Club awards in his first decade in the league. During that span, he began to be recognized as arguably the greatest defensive catcher ever. 
1969, he dropped Dog 26 times. Drove in 90 runs, batted 293, establishing himself as the best hitting catch- catcher in the majors. He started his first All-Star game, and as we mentioned this in the Pud Show last week, he and Iran are the youngest catchers to ever start an All-Star game down to the very age, month, and day. In his first All-Star start, he clobbers a home run and a single before being robbed by Carl Yastrzemski of a second home run with a spectacular leaping grab along the left field fence at Washington's RMK Stadium in the National League's 9-3 victory over the American League. And honestly, had he just put a little more mustard on that dong, he may have ran away with all-star MVP honors that day, but Willie McCovey from the Giants, he takes home the hardware with, ironically, two home run blasts of his own. And after the season, the Reds hire Sparky Anderson, a little-known former coach in the expansion team Padres system as well as the Reds. I believe the cards as well. The team promoted a few key rookies and a juggernaut was born. The garage lift was lowered and off the jacks rolled a beautiful big red machine. The 1970 club had a 10 game lead in mid-June and never looked back. Finishing with 102 wins, easily winning the NL West division. Bench led the way with a spectacular season for the ages. Clobbering 45 home runs with 148 RBI to lead the league and easily winning the NL MVP award. And although the season ends in disappointment and a five-game loss to the Baltimore Orioles in the 1970 World Series, a series that, you know, I covered extensively in the Big Red Machine show and also that Brooks Robinson show as well. Both of those shows, they're available in the BKP archives. Johnny Bench is one of the brightest stars in the baseball universe at this time. A 22-year-old freak, seemingly without weaknesses on the field, as well as a handsome, handsome, articulate, affable fellow, all of it. And not surprisingly, he is besieged with endorsement opportunities and banquet appearances. He goes to Vietnam to entertain American troops during the Vietnam conflict with Bob Hope and the USL. He plays golf with Arnold Palmer in the offseason. He made talk show appearances on TV and radio. And he even made a cameo appearance in the wildly famous hit TV show, Mission Impossible. And after such a heavy workload and Johnny's first two seasons... Sparky begin, begins resting a star. You know, and when I say resting, I mean, you know, he takes him out of the catcher spot, he moves him to first, maybe put him out in the outfield. He played all three outfield positions. You heard me right. 
All three. I mean, a catcher at center field. The thought of this just blows my mind. During that 1970 season, Bench's biggest offensive performance came in a game he played left field, actually. On July 26th at the brand new Riverfront Stadium, Johnny goes 4 for 5 versus the Cards, including three dogs. He smeared all over future Hall of Famer Steve Carlton's lips. Throughout the remainder of his prime years, Sparky began making sure to start bench anywhere from 20 to 30 games in other positions, keeping his bat in the lineup while giving his knees and legs and hips some rest from squatting. The 1971 season was a lost season. As the Reds fell prey to a World Series hangover, they finished in fourth place in the NL West. Johnny had a down year offensively with a 238 BA, 27 home runs, 61 RBIs, as did Tony Perez and others. Bobby Tolan was hurt all year. It was a total disaster from a team perspective. But Johnny wins another Gold Glove Award. He launches a home run off a Vada Blue in the All-Star Game. Held a Tiger State in Detroit. I think everybody hit a home run that day. But still, all in all, a very humbling season for the engine of the Big Red Machine. Fortified by the off-season acquisition of second baseman Joe Morgan, the Big Red Machine storms back into the 1972 campaign and wins the NL East by ten and a half games. I'm sorry, the NL West by ten and a half games to return to postseason play. And in the bottom of the ninth inning of the decisive game five, NLCS versus the Pittsburgh Pirates. It was Johnny Bench's home run at right field off of Bucko's pitcher Dave Justy that would tie the game before the Reds would play the game winner and serious clincher later to snatch the NL pennant. And, you know, you got to get on YouTube and see that call. It's great. Al Davis, he sounds like he's about 16 years old in the booth. I mean, you know... I don't even think he was in puberty yet. His voice is all cracking when he gets over. It's hilarious. Again, Bench led his teammates with 40 home runs, 125 RES. But again, the young, talented Reds would fall short in the Paul Classic. This time to the Oakland A's, who are about to go on a three-year run of total baseball dominance. The most memorable moment for Bench in this series, and one he would prefer to forget, came at the hands of Raleigh Fingers and A's manager Dick Williams. And we talked about this on the Raleigh Fingers show. Game three, top of the eighth. The Reds were leading the game one to nothing, but they trail in the series two games to nil. So, with runners on second and third, one out. Bench is facing Raleigh with a full count. When all of a sudden, a skipper calls time, walks out to the mound to talk to his closer. And the manager turns to Bench from atop the bump, points at Johnny, and then at first base in a clear gesture of their intent to walk this beast. A's catcher Gene Tennis returns to his position behind the plate. And stands up to receive the intentional ball for a pitch. 
But as Figures goes into his motion, the wily tennis, he hurries back into his squat as Raleigh throws a slider that nips the corner for a strike that absolutely paralyzed Johnny Bench. And he took that call strike without even raising his bat off his shoulders. Later in the 1972 season, a routine physical turned up a growth on Bench's lung that had the doctors perplexed over what exactly it was. And they're telling only close friends and management of this deal. Johnny finishes out the season with his weight, uh, with this weight hovering over him. And he finally has an operation on December 9th, two days after his 26th birthday, in which they made a 12-inch incision under his right arm and then break a rib to finally extract a benign lesion that he likely got from breathing an airborne fungus. After seven weeks of considerable pain, Johnny is fully healed, going into spring training. The next two campaigns, 73 and 74, were outstanding years for the Reds. Though the baseball talk of the time was starting to turn as... Cincinnati was gaining the reputation of a team that is good enough to win during the regular season, but always seems to come up short in October. In 1973, the club won 99 games, the most in baseball, but they fell to the Mets in the NLCS. In 74, they won 98 games, but they lost the NLS to the Dodgers. Bench contributed uh, 25 home runs and 104 RBIs in 73, and then 33 and 20, 129 in 1974, his third year leading the NL in RBI. And the whispers begin to get louder and louder. The Cincinnati Reds have one of the greatest lineup of players, one through eight, as anyone in the history of the game. Yet, for all their promise, for some reason, The Big Red Machine has been more akin to a sputtering gremlin than a power-packed diesel built to mercilessly run over their baseball opponents. Maybe, just maybe, the Big Red Machine is more hype than substance. And I tell you what, Steam Heads, I think this is where I'm going to break out, get together with my new co-host in crime, Charlie Guns, a.k.a. Gunner. And the OGs know I used to have my dog Flower in the studio with me every week. And sometimes you could hear her a lot in the older shows, offering up, you know, baseball takes every once in a while on a hot mic. Unfortunately, I had to put her down back in August, and I've kind of been grieving the last few months. The dojo was a little lonelier without her. So I went out and adopted a six-month-old chocolate tabby. And he has definitely breathed life back into the complex. And this show is an extension. So, I'm going to get my boy some treats, pay some bills around his joint, hydrate, set my course for Acts 2 and 3 of the Johnny Bench story. I will never charge my beautiful audience for baseball content. All I ask is that you rate and review me as you see fit. Share the show with the C-Man buddies and support the grassroots sponsors that support your grassroots baseball pod. I'll find other ways to finance my dream and keep the power on here in the dojo. So, don't go anywhere, freaks. 
I'll see you on the dark side of the moon. BRB. Backwards K-Pod. And the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Where we collect ball players and their stories. The last 11 runs in this game. And there's another hit. That's down to the gap for Bay. What a great night to be a Pirate. Pirates have scored 12 runs in the last three innings. And that's what Shohei has the ability. When you need a strikeout, Shohei can dial it up and get that strikeout. And Shohei reaches his 10th strikeout tonight. Shohei, the hitter tonight, homered his first time up. Center field, hit well. Mullins! He got it! 
To Cedric to Adderon after just taking one off the board. That is deep. That is out of here. Cedric Mullins drops a home run. Cedric Mullins hits a home run. This is probably the greatest two half innings I've ever seen a player have. And the tying run is on in the ninth. One away for Nick Castellanos. Castellanos in the air to right center field. Harris is on the run. Harris at the track. He leaps and he makes the the storyline. Where was the crowd of reporters before the game today? In whose locker? And in the batter's box. dislike about going fishing is the lingering odor it can leave on your hands afterwards. Well, the fishing hand cleaner is an all-natural liquid soap perfect for overpowering fish and bait odors from your hands. I can't tell you how many times I've eaten steamed crabs, lobster, shrimp, crawfish, and then washed my hands with regular soap only to touch my eyes half hour later and my face begins to melt off due to the damn Cajun no Bay spices. Well, we also have a hand cleaner specifically formulated to use after eating shellfish and other seafoods. Perfect for cleaning spicy, smelly hands after a Texas-sized seafood feast. In these cases, don't settle for anything less than our crawfish hand cleaner, our crab hand cleaner, or the fishing hand cleaner. An ingenious trifecta of natural hand soaps developed and owned by a disabled Navy veteran. He and Jake have a true connection, as they were boot camp shipmates all the way back in 1989. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do here at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is look out for family. So you can support two grassroots companies by two former shipmate Navy vets. 
crushing big bowls of shellfish, or fishing on the banks of your favorite river, while you listen to BKP. Sounds like a great day. You know, in fact, hey mom, where are my poles? I'm gone fishing. There's also a buffalo wing hand cleaner in development as we speak. To check all of the incredible products of this great company, you can go to www.crawfishhandcleaner.com or call the home offices at 713-588-0290. That's 713-588-0290 to support the grassroots company that supports your grassroots podcast show. That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or 713-588-0290 to prepare for your summer time shellfish feast or that fishing trip you're planning. Crawfishhandcleaner.com Oh, that's gone if it's fair. Hit the screen for a home run. Johnny Bench has just put the Reds out in front three to one. And Figueroa got that ball where I thought was a good spot up and in. And as Tony said, Bench's new style of aiming that bat at the pitcher, he timed it beautifully. I don't know if that was a fastball or a breaking ball. It looked like he was trying to get it in, so, but it didn't look like it had a lot of stuff on it like previous fastballs. It may have even been a hanging slider. There's that big, tall foul ball, both corners in Yankee Stadium. A lot of arguments before they put those up. Deep to left field. Roy White going way back, way back. Leaps and... Home run. It's a home run. They signal home run. Even though Roy White, the left field umpire, Lou DeMuro, has signaled a home run. So Johnny Bench has just hit his second home run of the night. A three-run homer. And the Cincinnati Reds now lead 6-2. to two. Roy White really gave that ball a chase. And here it is. White has made many plays like this, Joe, during the year. He's got a way of timing his leap. But it did not hit his glove. You saw it hit the fan there and then come back on the field. He quickly chased the ball. Here's another angle from our center field camera. Look at him find the wall, get above the fence. You see the ball hit the fan. But Lou DeMuro, the umpire, left field, ruled home run immediately. Two home runs by Bench in this game ties a record for a National League player. There you see him. Eight for 15 he's had in this series. Welcome back to Backwards K-Pod. 
on the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm your fearless leader, Jake Robinson. Got a little Van Wonder blaring as we come back from Spotson. Here's the thing, you know, some of you finite thinkers may not have figured it out here at BKP. I'm bending space and time, folks. Sometimes we have these flashpoint paradoxes where we encounter ripples of these anomalies which have residual effects over different dimensions. So, while in our dimension, Van Halen replaces David Lee Roth with Sammy Hagar after the 1984 album, in this altered dimension that I've captured, David Lee Roth is replaced with Stevie Wonder. And it's called Rock and Soul here. It's a huge genre. Anyway. Ha, wah, wah, wah. Man, wonder. Where are we? So, before me and Gunnar took that spot break, we were talking about the boy from small town Binger, Oklahoma, whose baseball journey leads him to the, all the way to the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. And since the age of six, he's been a catcher groomed by his baseball-crazy father, Ted, who missed out on his opportunity to play while fighting overseas in World War II. And Johnny's a natural on the diamond and the parquet hardwood floors and hoops. Honestly, everything comes fairly quickly to him on the playing fields, but he does encounter some near-fatal duels with death. The first time is when his baseball team school bus carrying him and his teammates between games it loses its brakes and it falls down a 50 foot ravine killing two of his friends and teammates and the second time comes when he's driving home to Binger after breaking his thumb in the first game of his promotion to the AAA level and he's involved in a car accident with a drunk driver that has him you know, pretty much no worse for wear after receiving 27 stitches in his head in 1965, he's drafted in the second round, number 36 overall by the Cincinnati Reds in the inaugural Major League Baseball Amateur Draft. And he quickly rises through the Reds' farm system, even though his batting was less than impressive. And his cup of coffee with the big club at the end of 1967. But Cincinnati loves his defense, and they followed his bat in the minors, and they feel confident in their projections of where they feel he's going to be. They trained their two-time All-Star catcher, Johnny Edwards, in the cards. And from that day forward, Bench owns the real estate behind the dish of Crossley Field and Riverfront Stadium for, for the next decade. And he's not just a generational-type talent. He's revolutionary, changing the way the game is played forever with his newfangled hinged catcher's mitt and his one-handed style, hiding his right hand behind his back during pitches. No one has ever dominated the defensive and offensive side of the catcher position in the modern game like Bench. And the team, the big red machine, they're feeding off of his leadership. And slowly but surely, the Reds have built a vast collection of young talent that would steamroll their way through the 1970s decade. And they were called the Big Red Machine, a team I've covered here 
in the BKP archives. One of the first shows I did in here, as a matter of fact. And the Big Red Machine was a collection of talent that is quite possibly one of the greatest lineups, certainly NL lineups, one through eight. You had guys like Pete Rose, Tony Perez, Lee May, Joe Morgan, Bobby Tolan, George Foster, Dave Concepcion, Cesar Geronimo. But the unquestioned leader of the team was Johnny freaking Bench. Sparky knew it, the team knew it, and Johnny knew it. And as great as the town was, there are loud screams from, you know, the Chris Russo types of the world that the Big Red Machine is nothing more than a paper tiger of a champion. And the pundits are beginning to question if the talented Reds are possibly a flawed postseason team. And there's questions whether Sparky Anderson can get it done, which it just sounds so funny thinking about it now. The Reds get to the World Series in 1970, losing to the Orioles, as well as suffering a World Series loss to the Oakland A's in 1972. They also lost the 1973 NLCS to the Mets, even though they finished the season with 99 wins and were heavily favored to face Oakland in a series rematch. The Big Red Machine would finally silence their critics in 1975 after winning 108 games, the most by an NL team in 66 years at that time, and defeating the battle-tested Pittsburgh Pirates in the NLCS and the Boston Red Sox in a dramatic seven-game series for the ages. Another series I've covered extensively here, most notably on the history of the Fenway Park show. Bench hits a big double to start a decisive rally in the ninth inning of Game 2. He splooges all over Rick Wise's face with Mammoth Dong to open up the red scoring in Game 3. But his favorite picture of the moment was staring at the cover of Sports Illustrated at a picture of him and pitcher Will McEnany embracing after watching the final out of the series. The Reds had finally taken their rightful place as world champions, and the doubters and non-believers had to shut the fuck up. And personally, it's been a vexing season for Johnny. He injured his right shoulder in a collision at the plate in April, and he experienced incredible pain throughout the year before battling flu-like symptoms throughout the post. And he did finish the season with... Uh, 283 BA, 28 Dingers, 110 RBI. 1976 was another fantastic season for the Big Red Machine, but Johnny, he battled cramps that affected him defensively as well as his swing. He slumps to a 234 average, which is 74 RBI on an outstanding offensive machine. After what had been the statistically worst season on his resume at that point, Johnny shines on the postseason, batting 444 between the NLCS and the World Series combined, eventually winning the World Series MVP as Cincinnati sweeps their way through the post, knocking off the Phillies in three and then the Yankees in four. 
as the Reds won back-to-back championships. And again, that's the last time that NLT has won back-to-back titles to this day. After the series, Sparky couldn't stop gushing over Johnny, telling the New York Scribes, I believe God came down and touched his mother Kathy on the forehead and said, I'm going to give you a son who will be one of the greatest ball players ever seen. His performance and the back-to-back chips and lifted his spirits after his disappointing season. Bench had his last big year in 1977, rebounding to 31 home runs, driving in 109. He bats 275 while capturing his 10th consecutive Gold Glove Award. The Reds fell to 88 wins, and again, I spoke on this. I spoke about this on the Big Red Machine Show. The economic landscape of baseball is changing rapidly in 1977. The reserve cost has been smashed by the highest court in the land, and players are rejoicing in their newfound freedom of controlling their own destiny. Teams like the Yankees and Angels, they're embracing baseball's new economic game, whereas teams like the Orioles and the Reds, well, they're not as receptive to spending large sums of money to superstars. And the Orioles saw guys like Reggie Jackson, Don Baylor, Bobby Gritch, and Grant Jackson walk out the door while the Reds began selling off parts of their big red machines, starting with Tony Perez in 1976. And within a few years, Sparky Anderson, Pete Rose, and Joe Morgan would all be wearing different gear. The only remaining remnant remaining in the Queen City was Johnny Bench, who sat down face-to-face with the front office and worked out a five-year $400,000 deal without an agent involved after the 1977 season. Now, 400 k in 1977, it's good money for the times. That's a little over $2 million today in the 2023 economy, but he certainly could have commanded more somewhere else had he taken advantage of the new economic system and made, you know, hired an agent. At the conclusion of the 1979 season, the 29-year-old had 10 seasons at catcher under his belt that most credible baseball historians of the time had concluded was the greatest showing ever by a backstop, and they named him the GOAT. He had a couple of off years, slumps he attributed to his demanding workload as a youngster, and during his career, he broke six, six bones in each foot from foul tips. Twice he broke his thumb. He always suffered through shoulder and back pains from the violent collisions catchers took back then. And even after his career had ended, he needed left and right hip replacement surgery for injuries that went all the way back to that fateful high school bus crash. But Bench knew the price. Ask him today if it was worth it. And after careful thought, he said, I took pride in being tough, playing in pain. Are there times I wish I had been a catcher? Sure. But then again, I wouldn't have been Johnny Bench. He remained a star in the baseball universe for a few more seasons. 
Though the injuries seem to mount up more and more as the career is performing its swan song. He plays in 120 games in 1978. Only 96 of those were starts behind the plate. And he continues to hit well, smashing 23 home runs. He played a little bit more in 1979, 130 games for a new manager, Jim McNamara. And he had 80 ribbies. The revamped Reds' surprising divinish win and takes Johnny into a sixth and last postseason appearance. He goes 3 for 12 in his last NLCS with a dong, only to see that last shot go up and smoke as the NL East champion Pirates sweep Cincinnati and route to a World Championship at the, the expense of the Baltimore Orioles. After one final season as an elite offensive catcher, 24 home runs, 114 RBI. Bench finished up his career as an infielder. He played first base, battled injuries during the strike short in 1981 season. Then he finished up with two unforgettable years as a below average mediocre third baseman. He announces his retirement in 1983, and he spends the rest of his summer playing to cheers in all of the different NL parks. In his final at bat, September 29th, 1983, he laces a pinch hit two run single of Giants pitcher Mark Calvert before his adoring fans at Riverfront Stadium. Gary Reedus came in to pinch run for the 35 year old icon, and with that, Johnny Bench and his magnificent career say goodbye to baseball. In the ensuing years, Bench remained tied to the game as he would broadcast games on television and radio. And in the 80s, he hosted the Baseball Bunch, a syndicated TV show in which a team of boys and girls would learn the finer points of the game with help of Johnny, who was the coach of the team, and his amazing group of current and former Major League Baseball players. And that's another topic we covered here at BKP in the Baseball Bunch podcast show. Bench was selected. uh, He was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1989, receiving 96% of the votes. In his first year of eligibility, becoming the first catcher to be inducted in his first year of eligibility. He made the Reds Hall of Fame in 1986, when the club retired as number five. Since 2000, the Johnny Bench Award has been presented after the conclusion of the College Baseball World Series to the top D1 catcher in the nation. In 2008, the Reds again honored him, this time with a bronze statue outside their new Great American ballpark. And how fitting is it the statue of him as Johnny in full gear getting ready to throw out yet another runner with his powerful right arm. And folks, I think this is where I'm going to wrap it up. I could go on and on about him for hours. There's all kinds of stuff out there about Johnny if you're interested in delving into uh, this incredible player a little more. And I have a lot of stories about Johnny littered throughout the BKP catalog, but I'm definitely proud to have a story and journey to add to our always expanding vaults of ball players and their stories. Thanks for stopping by, folks. You, you could have done a thousand other things with your time, but you chose to spend it with me, and for that, I'm truly humbled. I hope you enjoyed the Johnny Bench story as much as I enjoyed putting in the work and relaying it to you. And I promise, folks, 
I'm going to be up bright and early tomorrow hitting that cage. I promise, freaks. I'll try to be even better next week. Before I tip on out, y'all, let's take a look at those oh so lovely Johnny Bench stats. Johnny Lee Bench, born December 7th, 1947. So two days after this show drops into the baseball universe, Johnny will be celebrating his 76th birthday. 17-year baseball career, all with the Cincinnati Reds. He was drafted by those Reds in the second round of the first June amateur draft with the 36th pick overall. He became the 12,612 player to suit up for an NMLE team when he goes 0 for 3 on August 28, 1967 in his Major League debut versus the Phillies. A 75.1 career war. That's the highest mark for any catcher in baseball history. 2,158 games. 8,674 plate appearances, 1,091 runs, 2,048 hits, 381 doubles, 24 triples, 389 home runs. That was the record when he retired. It's since been passed. Still, though, there's 389 home runs. That's the 65th most in baseball history. 1,376 RBI, 3,644 total bases. And a 267, 342, 476 slash line, 817 OPS, and an 8, and a 123 OPS plus. Two-time NL MVP, 1970 and 1972. 14-time All-Star, 1968 NL Rookie of the Year, 1976 World Series MVP, 10 gold gloves from 1968 to 1977. In 1984, he became the first catcher in the history of baseball to make it into the Hall on the first ballot when he collects 431 votes out of 447 possible, which is a 96% clip. Certainly a ball player for the ages. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, seamen's of all ages, this is the story of Johnny Bench. Man, what a great player. I'm so glad we did these two catches back to back as the sun is setting setting on the uh, second season of PKP here. But, had no fear. We still have time left. I got plenty of gas in the tank ready to eat up some innings. And finish this year out strong. I will never charge you freaks for the baseball content. No Patreon, no Twitch, no pay to play subscriptions. I'm just going to keep coming through every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like my dude, Book Pat, Book Pal. And with a backwards K next to Johnny Bench's name in the books. I can pull them up nicely, add them to this amazing collection, and get you freaks back to Terrapin where your loved ones have been patiently waiting for your return for almost two minutes now. We gotta catch these portals, so I'm gonna put the pedal to the metal and get y'all home. 
So, with Johnny Bench getting smaller and smaller in my rear views, I turn my attention to I never say die baseball hydra, and I chop <coughs> the head off that beast, only to see two more baseball topics appear in its place. Next week. Oh man, this is going to be crazy. So, let me ask you, Steamheads, a hypothetical. We've done Disco Demolition Night here at BKP. What an amazing promo. And you couldn't think any promo could possibly be a worse idea, right? But what do you get when you have two baseball teams playing each other after brawling with one another early in the season and offering fans at that game a can of beer for a dime? You get complete fucking chaos. It's what you get, freaks. You get 10 cent beer night. Let's just say this is not going to end well. So make sure you tune in to hear what went down that night in Cleveland. Sounds like fun. But look, that's another story for another pod here at Backwards K Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. Please remember to share, rate, and review all those things I depend on for my podcast survival that you never know. Nah, what, 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 what? Screw Jake. Parents, if you see your kids sitting on the couch like a board AF, by all means, take those little monkeys outside and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And I agree with my boy Shay Hillebrand in our one-on-one sparring session in the dojo last year when he said you go to hell Andy Pettit see you next week race with the 10 cent beer night sounds like a good time me and my boy Charlie Gunn signing off and throwing up our Gunner Hendersons to all y'all that's our deuces race as in see you next week peace peace